welcome to this week's message from a new church. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our website, newchurch.nz. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this message. Well, I want to start with a, um, a passage of Scripture from uh, Genesis 5. So if you've got your Bible, would you open to Genesis 5 with me? And just give me a thumbs up once you're there. Nobody's actually got a Bible. That's right. Why would you, why would you bring a sword to church? <laughs> why bother? This is what it says, verse 21. Um, it's on the screen for the, the, you know, those of you that came ill-equipped this morning. It says this, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years. Now that's a miracle in of itself. He lived 365 years. And, and had other sons and daughters. I bet that's a long time. He must have been working hard. Anyway, altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. So we see here, this guy, his name's Enoch. We don't know a whole lot about him. He just gets these few mentions here and he, he's addressed a bit later in a couple other books. But what we see is that Enoch walked faithfully with God. He walked faithfully with God. And, and I want to make a suggestion to you today and to me that we need to get a better walk. We need to, like Enoch did, be people who can walk faithfully with God. And so that's the title of my message today. If you're taking notes, just write down, get a better walk. I assume Simon's taking notes because he always hounds me for not taking notes. Um, well, why don't you grab the hand of the person next to you? We're going to pray together. And then, um, and then I'll get into, into the Word. All right, well, Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your Word that still speaks to us today. Though it was written to people thousands of years ago, you speak uh, to us who, uh, who live thousands of years later. You're speaking to us today through your word. And so we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for, um, for you speaking, God. And, and I pray that every single one of us would, um, would catch a hold of what you're saying over your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, does anybody have tissues? I, I, do you know what? I woke up today with like groggy, sick. And so I woke up and I was like, I rebuke this in Jesus' name. And I put into practice what Chris talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'm most of the way there. And then I got up on stage and I got a runny nose. Which was the other thing. I feel like I have to say it now. When we were singing that song, Your Goodness is Running After Me. This is the other thing the Lord said to me this morning, is he was saying it's kind of like a runny nose, really. <laughs> like, you've got no control over it. It's, it's, it's not 
Like, you're not making it happen. It's just, it keeps running over me. Anyway, so maybe that's for you today. The goodness of God is like a runny nose. It's making, anyway. Um, If you are new here and you, um, you, you haven't heard me talk before, I apologize for today. Um, but so up until the start of this year, my wife um, and our two kids and I, we, we, we lived in Christchurch, well, Rangiora town just north, but nobody knows where that is. Um, but we, so we lived there, we were in Whangarei at the start of the year, God spoke to us and asked us to move. Um, totally out of the blue, we were not expecting it. In fact, we told God that we were not going to move here. Um, and, you know, I find sometimes when you tell God you're not going to do something, he likes to just, you know, be like, well, we'll see about that. Um, and so anyway, one, one of the things that was hardest when we moved in, I know so many people who, who weren't born in Whangarei, and so you, there are people from all around the world that are a part of this church. And so you'd be able to um, relate to this is, you know, the fact that you're not living close with your family. Um, anymore, and you're not like doing, um, you know, you're not doing all of the regular things that you would do, and 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 it, dynamics change, and and that was one of the things that was hard. Um, one of the reasons that I loved my family dynamic so much is they roast me harder than anybody else does. Like my siblings and my parents, they roast me so good, and it's and I think it's because I've got all of the history. Like they were there when as, as a preschooler, I wore the same pink dress every day. Oh, thank God I wasn't born today. Um, just saying. Um, uh, like they were there for that. Uh, they were there when my mum was the head preschool teacher. I don't know why she let me do that part. But when my mum was the head preschool teacher and she regularly had to call about this one child who was biting all of the other kids and then she had to tell them that it was her eldest son. Uh, you know, my family were there when, uh, they, they were there when I, um, they, I, I did all of my really, really silly stuff. They were there when I stayed up super late one night uh, unlocking all of the songs on High School Musical Sing Star with my cousin um, as a 15-year-old boy. Um, and, and like, they, they were there for all of my most embarrassing moments. And so they've got this history and they can roast me and they just have the best jokes. And it's not mean because, you know, it was so long ago. And, and, and because of that, like, and, and you'll find this, you know, the longer you're married, the longer you have friendships, the, the longer any, anything like that happens, the longer you're together, the better that they can roast you because they've got history. But at the same time, the better they can call you out when you're not living up to your potential. The better they're able to, to, to be like, hey, look, you can actually do better than this. The better that they can, you know, the longer you spend time with someone, the better they can, you know, shoot straight from the hip. They can hit you up because of the same reason. They've got the family history. They know what you've been through. They know where you've come from. They, they, they've got the context. And, and I wanna look at a New Testament book today that is written in that kind of family context. Now, we don't often think of New Testament books as being written within families, but I want to look at a passage from the book of Hebrews. 
Now, Hebrews is, um, I'm going to offend some people today. Uh, I think that Paul wrote Hebrews, um, which is maybe the most controversial thing you could say in a church, basically, now. Um, but I think, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, um, and that's just my personal conviction, and because it, it, it makes me feel better. Um, the truth is we have no idea who wrote Hebrews. As um, I heard Wayne Grunham say one time, he's like, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And so it kind of ruins most of our like, ways to add a book into the Bible. But how could you not have it there? It's just so good. Um, and so maybe it was Paul or Barnabas or... Uh, uh, I don't know what you said. I heard maybe it was you. It wasn't me. I'm not 2,000 years old. Um, Someone thought it was Clement of Rome. Um, Here's my going theory. This is what I reckon happened. Because the reason that people say it wasn't Paul, and probably 99% of you don't care about this, but I do. The reason, and and I have the microphone, and so it's my turn. Okay, anyway. (laughs) The reason that I think, this is what I think happened. I reckon Paul wrote it, in Hebrew, and then Luke translated it into Greek. Because the main reason people think Paul didn't write this book is because of the technical Greek um, and the way it's written. And the reason people think maybe Luke wrote it is because of the way that it, it flows the same to, uh, to, to Luke's two books, Luke and Acts. Anyway, all that to say... I think Paul wrote this. I've got the microphone. That's what we're going with today. So if I accidentally say Paul when I'm talking about the writer of Hebrews, don't shoot me, okay? I'm just, I'm just sharing my true inner self. But here's what's significant about this book is it's written to, you guessed it, the Hebrews. It's the only New Testament epistle we see that's specifically addressing Jewish Christians. And we know by the way that the book's written, even if it's not Paul, that it's a Jewish Christian writing it. And so this book, the book of Hebrews, these 13 chapters, is the only section that we see that is specifically from a Jewish Christian to more Jewish Christians. And so the writer... Paul, maybe, is going to address these people in a different way than he does the Gentiles because they've got shared family history. They, they have, they've been reading the same book. They've got the Torah. They know the stories. They have the same heroes. And so this is, like, this is a, a significant book, and we need to know this when we're reading it because then we go, oh, this is why he's using these arguments. This is why he's, he, he's addressing all of these things. So he's talking to some Christian Jews, Jewish Christians. Um, And and it's probably Paul. I don't know if I said that yet. Um, He's talking to these Jewish Christians. And he's talking to them because they're in this awkward situation. See, what would happen is when they would convert to Christianity... They would lose their jobs, their family, their house, you know, like they would lose everything. They, they were giving up everything. 
And um, we can see that throughout all of Paul's letters because he's constantly going around being like, hey, all you Gentile churches, can you give to the Jerusalem church? Because they really need some money. (laughs) They're really broke because they're giving everything to follow Jesus. And so what we see throughout this whole argument, I'm going to do this again. His goodness is running after you. Every time I do that, I'm going to remind you, and it's going to stick into your mind. You're going to remember every time you blow your nose from now on, His goodness is running after me. And, and so these people are facing intense persecution. And we can tell from what Paul writes that, that they're considering leaving the faith. Listen to these are, and so what he's going to do throughout this book is he's going to make the argument that there is no other option but Jesus. And here's the message we can take there is no option but Jesus. You can't turn anywhere else. There's no other place where you can find freedom. There's no other place where you can find salvation. You can't find pleasure in just doing whatever you want, living for yourself and financial gain. Jesus is the only place we can find we can find freedom. Jesus is the only place we'll find salvation. It is only in Jesus when we lay everything down that we'll find true riches. Anyway, in that, this is I'm just going to give you an overview of the book. We're going to do a quick survey of um, the book of Hebrews. This is chapter one. This is his big idea. Jesus is greater than the angels. And his point is, hey, look, the angels gave the Torah. That's great. But Jesus is giving the the new covenant. The old covenant came by angels, but the new covenant came by the Son of God. How much better is the new covenant? Chapter two, he shoots straight from the hip. He He gives his first warning. And he's going to give many warnings throughout this book. Chapter three, Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, Moses is the hero of the Old Testament. Really, I, I, I think of the Old Testament as basically it's Moses and then the commentary on Moses. That's kind of how it works out. And then the New Testament is Jesus and the commentary on Jesus. Uh, as there's the Gospels and then the explanation and the outworking of the Gospels. And so chapter three, Jesus is greater than Moses. Chapter four, Jesus is the great high priest. He, he, the, the writer is just decimating all of the Jewish, like their sacred cows. And he's saying, look, the high priest, that's Jesus. Moses, that's Jesus. Like he, he's just like, Jesus is the best. He's, he's the way. Chapter five, there's another warning. He's being brutal. Chapter six, God is faithful in His promises. Chapter 7, Jesus is like Melchizedek. Chapter 8, Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. Chapter 9, the power of the blood of Christ. Chapter 10, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And so this, these first 10 kind of chapters, his main idea is he's making all these arguments to say, look, guys, you cannot turn from Jesus. You cannot turn. And can I encourage you today, if you're like looking around in your life and go, man, is is this Christianity thing really, is it really all it's cut out to be? Or or could I just go and do my own thing and live my own way? And I, I would encourage you, read this book and see that Jesus is the only way. In chapter 11, he, he, he switches up for the last three chapters and he focuses on um, Christian character and, and, and how to actually live out our lives as Christians. So chapter 11 is the necessity of faith. Chapter 12, God disciples whom he loves. 
let that sink in. God, if, if God loves you, he's discipling you. If he's not pruning you, I'd be worried. Chapter 13 is exhortations for Christian living. I talked to Chris about this the other day and we were talking about the fact that we're like, man, I'm actually happy with my character. Why does God keep working on it? Like, I don't feel like I need to keep working on my character, but God keeps making me do it. And so Paul or Clement or Silas or Timothy or Luke or whoever wrote this book, they're writing talking to family. They're shooting straight from the hip. They're using all of this history, these, these things that is shared history together to make the argument that, man, you cannot turn from God. And as we see throughout chapter 11, 12, and 13, as he, as he broadens the, the um, and I'm saying he because the writer does use male pronouns, so we, we know that much at least, um, just in case anyone was you know, thinking otherwise. Um, as, we, as we read through uh, this next section, which is from chapter 11, I want to keep that in mind that the writer is talking to family. They're using the family history to make their point. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it back up. We're going to go to a Hebrews 11, and we're going to be talking about faith. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Not you, the, this, this runny nose. His goodness is running after you. Hebrews 11, I'm reading from the ESV for this, this um, here. So I, what I want to do is I just want to walk through this passage um, and help like unpack it as we go through it together. Um, and then I want to talk about how this actually outworks in our lives. Because it, it's great to read Scripture, but if you can't take it and then go, how does this actually work out in my life? It, it's hard for us to actually remember what we just learned. I was, I was watching a video this week about, um, about learning and, and gaining information, and, and Simon will love this. They said that if you just listen passively, you'll remember 20%. 30 days later, if you write notes, never look at them again, you will, um, you, you'll remember 50%. So there you go. Maybe you should take notes in church. But if you, if you figure out a way to become emotionally invested in what's being taught, you'll remember 90% of what you learn. So if we, can, if we can take Scripture and go, man, how do I apply this to my life? How does this actually change me? You'll remember more of what, what happens. So let's walk through this together. Hebrews 11, chapter 1. And I, I hope you know this. You, I'm sure you've probably heard these passages before, but let's walk through this together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we're talking about faith today. We're talking on the topic of faith. And Paul gives us the definition. He tells us what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith deals with the future, the things we're hoping for, and the things that are unseen. Faith gives substance to what we hope for and confidence in God's promise. Verse two, for by it, 
faith, the people of old received their commendation. So, so he instantly brings faith into the topic of commendation, of reward. He goes, and he's going to use this. He's going to use this line here for by it, the people of old received their commendation as his main argument. This is what he's going to do over the rest of Hebrews 11. He's going to go through the heroes of the Jewish faith. He's going to go through them and he's going to talk about how faith played out in their lives. Verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So he's going to put the context of our faith in God, the creator. It's not faith in, in, in you know, like just it's over there and I'm hoping in it. And, but he, he's grounding our faith, not in some wishful thinking or hopeful desire, but in God who created heaven and earth. He's putting our faith in the God who made everything out of nothing. Just take a moment and and think about that. He's saying, hey, look, this faith that I'm about to describe to you, it's it's not in yourself, it's not in your friends, it's not in your family, it's in the God who made everything from nothing. Verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This shows us that faith is an internal metric. Both Cain and Abel gave offerings. Both of them gave something. And we know that from, from what we, we see from Jesus' teachings, that the amount of the offering is not where, that's not what tells someone's faithfulness. You know, Jesus shares the story of the lady who, um, who, who gives a, a, just a single coin and, and he says, man, her, her faithfulness is so much greater. And we, we, he celebrates this person who gives a little and so we see here with Cain and Abel, he's talking, he's like, it's the faith, it, it, this is an internal metric. This is an internal thing. He's addressing, it's actually an internal um, attitude. It's, it's something on the inside of you. It's not, it's not the measurable, like how much I gave in the expansion offering. Um, or it's, it's not the measurable how much I actually did, or, but it's, it's something internal. Verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him up. God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commanded as one, as, as having pleased God. I read that and I think I want to be like Enoch. I want to be one who was commended in, in eternity as one who pleased 
God. Uh, and and I'm, gl- I'm, I'm grateful to the writer of Hebrews because they're about to tell us what pleases God. They're about to tell us what Enoch did. They're about to tell us and explain to us how we, we walk, not just as people who go, yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven and I'm just gonna, just gonna you know, slide on in there, but actually how to walk as one who pleases God. Verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek them. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now we read that and go, you know, it, it, we generally read that as encouraging. But remember, Paul's talking to family. He's shooting from the hip. He's like, all of the laws, all of these things that you're doing day in and day out to make yourself pleasing to God, all these things, all these religious activities that you're doing, the blood, sweat and tears without faith, it's nothing. Without faith, it's, it's nothing. It is, it's without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those that seek Him. He's reiterated verse one here. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, have confidence in what is unseen, believe He exists, have confidence in what is unseen, and that He rewards those who seek Him. Assurance of what we've hoped for. And so he's used this sandwich in this opening section on faith to explain to us not just what faith is, but who faith is in and why faith is so important. Our faith is in the creator of the universe. See, faith says, God says who, God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. In the face of eternity, uh, faith says God is Saviour and He will save. In the face of sickness, in the face of sickness, faith says God is healer and He will heal. In the face of financial trouble, God is provider and He will provide. Faith says in the middle of your circumstance, remember he's talking to these people in deep persecution. They have lost everything. In the middle of the worst possible place you could find yourself in, faith says, I can trust who God is and what He will do. I can trust that God is who He says He is and He will do what He said He will do. In Hebrews 11, it's going to carry on and, and he's, going to, he's going to talk about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Gideon, Samson. He's going to go through these great heroes of the faith. But if you're a Jewish, if you're a Jewish guy, you're reading this, you're hearing this read out, you, you, you've, Paul, Paul's written this letter to you and you, you, you hear these guys instantly, you're thinking, oh, these guys didn't have it all together. They made mistakes. You know, Abraham lied a lot. He kept saying that his wife was his sister. That's not good. David, everyone knows. I feel sorry for David. Everybody knows his big mistakes. 
Poor David. Solomon, man. He, he, made some, he had some issues. And, and as you're reading through this, if you're thinking about these people in context and you're realizing, man, it wasn't their, their success that God was pleased with. It's not, Abraham's name isn't known. He's not the father of, of faith because he, he was really, really good or because he tried really, really hard or because every time he stepped out in faith, it worked really, really well for him, but because of his faith. It wasn't his success but it was his steps of faith. See, what was a game changer for me as a young person, and this was when Chris and Ruth were, were my pastors, uh, under, under their leadership, I remember learning that it wasn't the success when I prayed for a sick person that pleased God, it was the step. It wasn't, this, it wasn't the success when I, 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 I prayed and a miracle happened, that pleased me. Let's be real. I feel be- if I pray for someone and they get healed, I feel better about it. And they probably feel better too because they were sick prior to me he- praying for them. So it makes me feel better. And so we can all agree on that. But it's, it's not the success of the step. It's the step that pleases God. It's, it's actually, it's not the, the, the how many, you know, how many times you pray for, you know, how many people you can raise from the dead. That pleases God, but it's, it's how, many, how many times you actually believe God in faith could do that. That you actually, in the midst of a terrible circumstance, God say, in the, in the face of, of sickness, whatever it is, you say, God is who He says He is, and He will do what He said He'll do. And I wanted to talk about this today because for me, this is what changed everything when it came to healing. We're, we're heading into a series where we're talking about healing. Chris opened it a couple of weeks ago. And, and this for me was the game changer because it meant that I would keep going back for more even when it didn't work out. Even when I looked for a fool, like a fool. Even when I stood up on stage and said, is there anyone here who owns two ponies? It can't be three, it can't be one. Like I could have just got up and, and went with the soft, the ponies. It was probably likely. I didn't even know Celeste owned some, but I could have known, like I, I, it was, it was the, the fact that man, it doesn't, God is, I'm not worried about whether I succeed. I'm just worried about whether I step out in faith. That changed everything. Now, I've seen countless miracles. I've seen so many legs grow, I cannot count how many. I've seen, um, I had a friend who was healed of cancer. He had a scan and we prayed for him that night and three days later, it came back completely clear. He was gonna be blind or he would, um, or like he was going to be blind unless God did a miracle. Um, I've seen backs restored. I've seen broken bones healed. I've, I, I've felt, I, I had my hand on someone's back and we prayed for them as their spine came back into alignment. It had been out of whack from birth. I've seen God do, God do a, a, a incredible miracles, but I want to tell you about a different story. See, um, I, I was a, a bit of a, Charismatic Spiro as a young as a young chap, I uh, used to regularly. I had long long hair, 
down to here. I would worship lead. I don't know why I was allowed to, but I would worship lead in bare feet or jandals, mostly just bare feet, um, which is not culturally appropriate in Canterbury. You might get, you know, maybe you could get away with it in Northland, you know, because it's like actually warm and there's real summer. But like in Canterbury, anyway, and so, and I, I would occasionally sing, you know, about how Jesus was my boyfriend. Anyway, I, that's, I came from like a hippie worship, you know, like I, I, I went, it was a phase, all right? In the midst of that, though, I had incredible encounters with God that meant when I learned his word, I you know, still had a relationship with him. So I praise God for my hippie, hippie days where I was, you know, where I was wacko. I was especially weird at youth ministry. Um, and we were at this youth camp. It's called Easter Camp. It, it, it happens in Christchurch. There was 4,000 teenagers at it. Um, and... I thought Easter camp was boring because they just basically preached the gospel and I was like, why are we not speaking in tongues and prophesying and healing people? So me and um, a friend of mine, Connor Seed, he, he goes to Bethel. I'm just naming and shaming today. Hi, Connor, if you watch this later. Uh, we would go out during the meetings and just target the kids who were like not, Worshipping, like the one, because there were 4,000 people in a tent, and most of them would, uh, in like, you know, you'd have 500 that would go and hang out outside down the back. And so we'd just walk around anyone with crutches, you know, limping, basically anything that was a giveaway that we could pray for you, uh, we would go and do that. And that's where I saw a lot of miracles. But I was full of faith at this one Easter camp, and I was fired up, ready for God to do something powerful. And, um, and there was this kid um, down the back at, at, in worship, uh, after worship one of the nights, um, and he was in a wheelchair. And so I went over and I said, hey, look, we've been praying for people all day. Um, can I pray with you? And this kid was like, yeah, let's go. And, you know, he was full of faith as well, and so it was exciting. And so we prayed for a bit, and uh, we were both feeling pretty fired up. So he was, he was like, yeah, I'm keen. Like, I will, like... I can walk a little bit. Um, and so he could take a few steps. And so I put him on my shoulder. No, not on my shoulder. He put his arm around my shoulder and we kind of limped and spoke in tongues around the auditorium. This poor kid, we did it like five times. And it is a big tent. And we just kept going, praying, believing that God would do something. Eventually he turns to me and says, hey man, I'm pretty tired. I just need to sit down. And man, I was so disappointed because I so thought I was going to see the miracle. And I bet he was disappointed as well because he was fired up at the start. I think we used most of the fire while we walked around the building. But when I, when I reflect on that, man, I don't see my disappointment anymore. I see God's pleasure in my, in my faith. I see God's pleasure in his faith. And, and man, I have no idea. That kid could have gone off and gotten healed. And, and maybe it was just that God was like, well, wait till Mitch gets out of the way, then we'll do the miracle. I have no clue. I don't know what his name is. I don't know anything. But what I've learned is that if we wanna be like Enoch, 
If we want to be someone who walks faithfully with God, if we want to be someone who is pleasing God, or as it puts it in verse 6, anyone who is drawing near to God, we must do it with faith. We must be ones who, who, who realise that God is pleased with the step, not the success. Thanks so much for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. To contact us or to find out what's happening at our church, please check out our website, renewchurch.nz.